0: Hello. This is the Scuttlebutt Podcast. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer: This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any investment decision. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security.
1: We eat much today, and I don't
0: know, just kind of old. I always try to keep those two separate: eating and drinking. Just drink on an empty stomach. Fly into the night like a phoenix. <laughs> They're very yeah.
1: consistent on this point. So, should we like? Should we, should we dive in here? Yeah, we can.
0: Um, so, I'm Dave. I write the Scuttleblurb blog, and my co-host on on this podcast is Aaron Salen. Aaron's Aaron's a friend of mine from uh, business school. He's doing some cool stuff in small cap in the small cap space. Do you want Do you want to take it from there?
1: Yeah, I I run an RIA here in Miami, and. The strategy is a small cap, special sits focus. I kind of thought that there was a niche where the market was generally underserved. You know, there's large cap managers who focus on event driven stuff, and there's small cap managers, but there really didn't seem to be like anyone who was focusing on that, you know, the intersection of those two strategies. And so that's kind of what I do.
0: All right, cool. So I thought a good place to start might be Blue links since we've both covered it. I first looked at it. Um, Five or six years ago, I think I found it through a screen. And I thought at the time that book value understated the market value of the land that they owned and offered downside protection. And then there were some operational and logistical changes um, going on that perhaps augured good things from a profit perspective. But I haven't followed this one in a while. And um, I was not involved, sadly, when they made the Cedar Creek acquisition. But Aaron, you were So do you want to tell us about that?
1: I don't think anyone could have predicted them announcing that the Cedar Creek deal, that was perhaps the most accretive transaction that I've seen. I mean, highly levered, obviously, but very, very accretive. Um, I'll give you a little, little history of how I came across it. I came across this in the middle of last year when Cerberus did a secondary to unload their shares. And I didn't really know too much about it at the time, but... I saw the price go from, you know, 10 to seven, you know, you see that te- kind of technical overhang on the stock and it's just kind of raises some eyebrows and got me interested in, in the company, you know, built a position then just based on what I saw, what I saw in the company. And, you know, as I did more work, I realized, you know, there is the real estate downside protection. You know, if you looked at the market value of that real estate, it was probably 20 bucks a share at the time. But you know, as you mentioned, there were the were, there were the cost cutting initiatives and decentralizing purchasing and um, improving the operations from that perspective. Kind of held on to the company, and then and then early this year they did this acquisition where they bought Cedar Creek, and you know these were two companies that competed with each other. There was really high geographical overlap, and so just given that where they were situated, there was a lot of synergies that <clears throat> that they could extract that others couldn't.
0: And uh, Cedar Creek was also private equity backed, right?
1: They were private equity backed. Um, it was kind of end of life for that fund as well. And so they were looking to get out. And Blue Lynx was just you know, the, the best buyer at that point. <laughs> it's interesting because you see the stock go from, you know, you've, you've got this initial event where it goes from 10 to 7 on this technical overhang. It pretty quickly rebounds back to 10. And then um, they sell some real estate. So it goes from 10 to 15. And then at that point, you know the question is you're seeing there at fifteen, you've got this upside of twenty of twenty bucks based on the on the real estate book value, but then you, all of a sudden you see this you know this acquisition of Cedar Creek, and it moves from uh, like a like a liquidation story or like a downside protection story to more of you know what's the what's the potential cash flow of this company, and so you know every single small cap man- manager at that point was looking at this, saying like you know. This thing's going to do eight bucks a share, free cash flow. It's trading at, you know, when it went from fifteen to forty, and even at forty, you're saying it's trading at five times cash flow. Um, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you know, as kind of it turns out, you've seen single housing, uh, single family housing roll over, and kind of the market take a downturn. And I've been thinking a lot about, I guess, sell discipline. How do you? Make that determination to get out of position, and th- there's a couple things that go into in, into into play. Like you know, there's behavioral factors, there's tax implications, and then there's also like investment horizons. And so, Blue BlueLinks is a really interesting example because you do you kind of have a bunch of those factors all go into this one stock.
0: It seems everyone makes the same points on sell discipline. Um, you know, sell when the thesis breaks, price reaches fair value, or something better comes along, and I don't really yeah. have anything to add to that, although I do think there should be a high bar to selling a stock you own in order to replace it with a new one, um, not just for tax reasons, but also because you've taken the time to know the existing stock really well in a way you haven't with the new stock. You don't want to take this to an extreme, obviously, but if you think you can earn 12% a year on the existing stock, and this new stock presents the possibility of 15%, it's probably not worth replacing it um, just because you likely have less conviction around that 15% even if it doesn't appear that way um, in your own mind at the time. Bah, that was garbage. (laughs) Um, Basically, be humble about your state of knowledge. So, I mean, if I were a saint about this, that's how I'd do it, but I definitely trade more than I should relative uh, to that standard. Um, but now that we're on the topic of housing, I thought I'd talk about, uh, Zillow real quick, which I wrote about recently. Um, so I've been following Zillow on and off for about three years. So I wouldn't say I'm super close to it, but it just seems like a business that should be minting money. And yet profits have eluded them for years. Um, they have 90% gross margins that just vanish to nothing by the time you get down to Ebitda, And that's always been a mystery to me. Um, uh, management discloses very little that would help us evaluate what's going on they change up disclosures like you know why stop disclosing agents and revenue per agent those are foundational metrics uh, that would be helpful and also you know if you're going to pitch yourself as a crm platform maybe give us churn or lifetime value cac or or something and supposedly premier agents were generating eight times their zillow spend and commissions And now the company's imposing price caps in some markets because it turns out some premier agents in those markets were making only one time. So what's up with that? Are we talking about two or three unusually competitive markets or is this a more pervasive problem? I don't know. And I don't know. Strategically, they just seem all over the place. But um, I was talking to a subscriber who made an interesting point, um, which was... You know, he thinks that agents will pay something like 30 bucks for a buyer lead, but seller leads are way more valuable because they convert at a higher rate. So if you think about the homes business, everyone's focused on, you know, can they make money flipping homes? But that may actually not be the right question because all the homes that Zillow is passing on, they're sending those leads to the premier agents. And on the last conference call, Zillow was saying that um, a little less than half of the homes that they pass on then get listed at some point anyway. So if you think about that, if Zillow becomes a major source for seller leads via the home business, um, then maybe you can look at the home business really as a lever for creating seller leads. So anyway, thought that was an interesting perspective.
1: I just, I feel like, I don't know, I'm always very skeptical of, of companies that, Kind of mess with their disclosure, and so,
0: yeah, yeah. I guess the other point to make is that Rightmove and REA in the UK and Australia, respectively, they have over you know fifty percent EBITDA margins, but their data is proprietary. Whereas yeah. Zillow relies on um, MLS data sourced from third parties.
1: Yeah, so that's like a structural structural disadvantage there.
0: This is not specific to Zillow necessarily. But I think that valuations have generally gotten out of hand in the mid-cap internet SaaS space. There was once a time when 10 times revenue was considered the upper end and 5 times was more the norm. Maybe when most people are valuing these companies, they're almost exclusively looking at um, like last quarter's or last year's growth rates or rule of 40 metrics or whatever and, and not really thinking about how sustainable those growth rates or metrics are given the qualitative attributes of the business. I mean, if you're buying something at 20 times revs, basically the main question above all else is how big can this company get in five to 10 years? And that's going to be a function of competitive advantages.
1: I I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you look at, I mean, correlations for all these names seems very high, regardless of who their customer base is, what the product is, you know, how, how how it's situated competitively you know if you look at some of the the names that are like at least the larger saas names like the, a lot of them are cash flow have pretty attractive cash flow multiples and so that's like a more that's a more tangible valuation where you can be like okay i'm getting this tangible return on on the stock although and i know you and i have
0: discussed this before
1: but cash flow too
0: should be treated with with care so i mean there's this well-worn idea that gap financials aren't helpful for fast growing saas companies because you're expensing sales and marketing upfront and recognizing the revenue over time, but it's also worth scrutinizing the free cash flow. Um, I mean, like, what does a free cash flow margin really mean in the context of a fast-growing SaaS? Um, Palo Alto Networks has stock comp that's a quarter of their revenue, and that's an expense that isn't accounted for anywhere in the free ca- cash flow margin. And also, there's you know changes in deferred revenue. That's another big add back to net income. Um, and that will have some costs attached to it when it bleeds into the income statement over time. So, um, so those are typically two huge factors that drive a wedge between earnings and cash flow. Um, but so then you know you're dividing the latter number into the gap revenue number to get to margins. You know it's kind of a uh, a weird way to look at it. There should be a matching principle that applies between revenue and expenses here, and I don't know that either the gap earnings. Or or cash flows really accomplish this? Correct.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess the thing is, um, you want to make sure that whatever SaaS company, and this is it's a good point, is that you want to make sure that you're not seeing like a pull forward or. Um, so I, I think you and I had a... I, I remember this conversation, and I think we actually had um, a disagreement on this. So my feeling is it's okay to add com in the cash flow statement because um, you know some of that gets. Just accounting shenanigans. It's accounting stuff, just related to how the stock price performs, and so you want to add that back. Um, but in order to account for that, you want to blow out the, st- the share pr- or the share count. And so the true thing to do is, let's say if you're going to build a 5, 10 year model, you know you assume that they continue to issue stock comp. You can you assume that there's continued share dilution essentially, and that um, you look at like an, uh, the free cash flow multiple that way. You know, one thing, I don't know, I think I think you were saying that it's actually not fair to add back the stock comp in addition to that, whereas I felt like it's okay to add it back because you're blowing out the denominator.
0: Yeah, I think I think we're on the same page there.
1: Oh, we're on the same page? Um, you can back out the stock comp and blow out the shares as long as
0: you're looking at these metrics on a per share basis. I'm just saying, like, if you take EBITDA at face value and you don't, Expense, the stock comp, then you're getting a distorted view of profits and margins. Also, anti-dilutive shares are often excluded from the weighted average diluted share count that you see on the um, on the income statement just because the company is making negative gap profits. Right. And, and for some of these SaaS companies, the anti-dilutive shares are huge, like 20% or more of, of the average count that's reported. Uh, and so, you know, you got to throw those in there.
1: Yeah, you know, there's a little bit of fuzziness here because you're, you're trying to predict the future. I mean, that's what a, a model does, is it? And you know, when you're talking about like share dilution and kind of how that flows through the income statement or cash flow statement, you know, there's a lot of impre- imprecision that goes on. It kind of reminds me, like, you know, I used to work in private equity at Macquarie, and you know, this isn't a dig or anything, but we used to build like 20 year quarterly cash flow models. If you could tell me what the cash flow will be in Q3 of 2030, well, good for you. <laughs> you know, like, that is just not happening. And so... <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wrote a tweet about
0: this point, actually, a few weeks ago. There's um, there's definitely this tendency in our industry to confuse um, tools with, with understanding. And I'm yeah. definitely guilty of that, too, sometimes. But... Um, what were we just uh, t- well? So to take it back to, um, I guess, SaaS and valuations. So there, you know, there are qualitative differences that matter between these companies, and I think that so much of the time the conversation is around what you know, like revenue grew by this, margins did that, instead of
1: the why. You know, like why is such and such company competitively advantaged? Well, that it's, it's interesting because um, I was having this conversation with our mutual friend, Charlie, and he, um, I was talking to him about the benefits of a platform rather than a product. Yeah,
0: exactly. So, uh, you know, everyone aspires towards owning distribution at one point, but maybe you get your start, you know, um, doing one job really well. Um, Coupa, for instance, is laser focused on savings and procurement um, in a way that SAP is not. The centerpiece of SAP is their ERP suite. And and then they have these other modules that, that sort of orbit around it. But, you know, they're losing share to Koopa in this one area, uh, savings as a service or whatever. Um, Okta, kind of similar thing going on there relative to Active Directory, which is bundled in with um, other Microsoft procs. But then um, eventually those procs get broad ecosystem adoption and then, you know, just become platforms that distribute other products. And uh, of course, all this was made possible by enterprise cloud adoption. Okta and Coupa aren't porting over on-premise products. They were born in the cloud and so can think about things from from, uh, first principles.
1: You know, if if you find a company that you like with long-term attractive growth prospects um, and an attractive valuation, you know, how do you balance that against like near-term sentiment Near-term uh, factors that are going through in the market, where you know you've seen a lot of you've seen a lot of re-rating of these companies over the last month. With, with respect to
0: valuation, just to contradict the point um, I made earlier, there there is an argument to just always be- being bullish. Um, a while back, I was reading this paper from Jeremy Siegel, I think, and uh, and Jerry Capital at Jerry Cap on Twitter recently tweeted an exhibit that also showed this. They um, just pointed out that uh, even if you had bought the Nifty 50 at the peak in the early 70s, and the Nifty 50, of course, uh, gets a lot of grief for being glamour stocks that were overpriced. But, you know, had you bought uh, the Nifty 50 at the peak in the early 70s, if you just held on, you know, 20 or 30 years later, you would have done um, almost as well, just as well as the, as the S&P 500. So I don't know. Does that sound like
1: bullshit to you? I think that's, I think that's generally right. Like, I think, especially for what you're doing, like you don't need to look at the market that much when it comes to like certain things that are more liquid, you know, it is important to look at the market. I feel like, because, you know, a bid ask is basically just an opportunity, right? And, you know, if someone's willing to sell something at a certain price, you want to make sure that you're there to take advantage of that.
0: So what about, um, what about just setting alerts or limit orders at prices you think are attractive.
1: If you're talking about a stock that's liquid and trades a lot, like yeah, you could set up alerts, but right. for things that aren't that liquid, you know, sometimes you have to look at that bid ask in order to actually see what's happening. You might want to hit that ask even if like it wouldn't show up on your alert.
0: Yeah, makes sense. I guess um, you know, one thing to consider and this is this is more of a behavioral point, I guess is that you know, if, you're, if, you can, if you constantly have bids and offers flashing in front of you, there might be this temptation to think something is worth buying or selling just based on how the stock moved rather than based on um, your determination of the fair value of the stock. Uh, and then, of course, there's just the opportunity cost of not being able to research or, or learn more about your companies while your attention is focused on the screens.
1: It's a, it's a good point. You're anchoring to you're anchoring to prior prices. Yeah, one thing I do is also just like, you know, when, when the market tanks, I just I, I just leave. You know, like take shut down the screen, um, go somewhere else, do research somewhere else, where you like just get away from it, because you're right. There's an opportunity cost like obsessing over things.
0: Um, so maybe just to shift gears here, um, I wanted to squeeze in was airlines into this convo. I haven't found a place to do that, um, so I'm just going to do it now. Um, So uh, Ryanair started with this model in the 1980s uh, where they focused on secondary airports that were basically desperate for traffic, and so they were able to strike these low landing fees. Um, They standardized on the Boeing fleet. Uh, They got a volume discount there, and all the cost savings that Ryanair realized relative to incumbents who didn't do this were then recycled into lower ticket prices that then drew more passengers, which made them even more compelling to airports and allowed them to order more aircraft at favorable prices and so on. And then, of course, you know, they have this culture of fanatical um, cost discipline layered on top. Uh, Ryanair essentially stole or copied this model from Southwest and now Wiz Airlines is copying it from Ryanair and applying it in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, you know, Wiz's cost structure, is, it's definitely better than incumbents, not quite as good as Ryanair, but pretty close. But even so, um, I thought this could be more interesting than Ryanair uh, because they're, they're, they're targeting a market that's growing a lot faster. Uh, Wiz is growing their passengers at twice the rate of Ryanair. Um, there've been some issues, I mean, uh, ancillary revenue, so that's, uh, you know, fees for checking in bags, priority boarding and that kind of stuff. Uh, that's like 40% of Wiz's revenue. It's much higher than Ryanair. Um, they made some changes to the baggage policy that caused some hiccups there. And then obviously there are just your generic macro and industry risks, um, that relate to any airline. And I'm not saying that Wiz is immune from that, but I do think they'll get through it much better than these stodgy incumbents and maybe be in a position to to take share because what is a cyclical problem for a lot of these low-cost airlines um, is an existential risk for some of these incumbents. Um, I mean, what matters in the airlines ultimately, uh, if you're looking out multiple years, is just can they sustain the relative cost advantage versus peers? And so, I don't know, this thing... Um, generates you know incremental cash returns on gross capital uh kind of in the high teens low 20s maybe if you capitalize the leases they trade if i recall uh, maybe seven times EBITDA, uh, 10 times maintenance free cash flow
1: sounds interesting bullshit you think my idea sucks i mean i think it's kind of a commoditized product it's hard to you know in the u.s at least like they've tried to make it a little bit more service oriented, but I mean, especially in Europe, you know, especially, and also what the target market of was there, like it's definitely much more commoditized. And so, you know, it's costing for them and they seem to be at the forefront of what everyone else does. Yeah. All
0: right. Um, so you want to do one last one before we sign off?
1: Um, you know, I know, I know you and I talked about um, Rocky, but instead I actually think I'm going to talk a little bit about um, Primo Water. So okay, cool. You know th- these guys have um, kind of like a bottled water exchange um, and distribution, and a bunch of like retail outlets, like f- over like forty five thousand outlets in the United States. Basically, like the big jugs of water you can like drop off a canister and fill it up and whatnot. Right. I came across the company like a few years ago. They were buying. So Primo bought this other company called Glacier. And it was a really interesting merger arb situation because it was like Glacier was OTC, it was majority owned. The consideration was part in stock, part in cash, and then also part in these like five-year non-tradable warrants. And then also part of the stock that you were going to receive was going to, had to go into escrow for for like six months to a year. So it was like a pretty messy deal, um, but like a super interesting arb opportunity. Anyway, so, like, I, I've got some of those warrants from that ARB, but, like, I was just listening to the earnings call this week, and th- that's, not, that's not just tanked. I don't know. If it just got destroyed on their earnings. It seems like a lot of this was just, like, short-term, just kind of like these short-term operational issues that they're having. So, basically, they used to be on a system where, like, they would go out and service every destination, like, every other week. And they recently changed it up to where it's, like, instead of doing that every other week, Let's focus on servicing um, locations based upon usage, which is a much better model. So you're not over-servicing certain locations. And it's basically, you know, you're doing it the right amount. Now, what that uncovered was that they ended up leaving certain, certain locations basically unserviced for periods of time. And then those locations were actually like the machines were breaking down. This uncovered this like fundamental issue in the company where like, these machines were not functioning properly, and so um, a lot of it was because like they were taking in coins instead of cards, and so they're basically like replacing all of these machines with cards. So the stock got beaten up over this like really like short term issue where it's like you know that they, they messed up on their on this rollout of this new initiative, but in reality they uncovered this um, kind of hidden growth um, opportunity for them because now wait a second would you call you know, this a hidden gem? <laughs> <laughs> this thing is definitely a gem. <laughs> yeah. And so so these things were being down for like um, an extended period of time. And so you had this like short-term issue where it just got exacerbated. But what it uncovered was that a lot of the machines that they bought through Glacier had like extended downtime that they shouldn't have had. It was kind of like the they uncovered this opportunity to improve the operations of this prior asset that they bought that they, that de, they didn't even know about it. Like the short of it is, you had this like big negative market reaction to this like near term kind of operational issue. Um, I think the stock's kind of interesting. Like they're going to write the ship over the next six months, and then on top of that, they're going to accelerate growth because Glacier was had this downtime that they didn't have before. You know what you get is a, a pretty attractive. It's a levered equity, but you still have a pretty attractive free cash flow yield with like you know recurring, recurring revenue business where. You know, it's a razor, razor blade model, um, more installed units. You know, people go and refill their machines more. And, um, you know, that's kind of a nice revenue stream to have. On the retail side of business, like, you know, the selling the machines to, like, you, for instance, to put into your house, like, that's actually accelerating. The business seems to be going really well outside of this, like, one hiccup that they had. And I was just, I was surprised to see it drop like 20% in one day on this. Yeah. Well, that was good. Um, I guess we
0: should. Uh, call it here uh do you want to give people your contact information where where they can reach you
1: you can find me at my website www.marionroadcapital that's m-e-r-i-o-n com.
0: and i'm at scuttleblurb.com or you can find me on twitter at compound insight if you like the podcast throw up some stars and we'll talk to you later bye